0: Second service. You guys are too nice. Love y'all. It is second service. Wow. Look at you guys looking good this morning. Looking good to those online. Welcome today. Before I get started, though, this is a special day. All right. It is Palm Sunday, right? So we're celebrating that. But I also have in my house for the first time in my life, a 16 year old. So Lily, happy birthday today. Love you, pumpkin. Y'all pray for me these these days of driving and teaching driving. Or I got a few more gray hairs here, and so those of you who've been down the road, you know what that's like. You know it. So um, uh, so pray for me. Pray for me. Amen. So excited for today! What an amazing week we are getting ready to have together as we celebrate the life. The death and the resurrection of Jesus through walk the last week. And so today is really, what we're going to experience this week is really a prequel to Easter. Now, I don't know about you, but I love prequel stories. Anybody in here, a prequel fan? Like, there's the story we all know and are familiar with, but then the prequel comes out and it gives the backstory and it has all this context and nuances and character development. We love prequels. Now, turn to your partner, uh, your Nate, not your partner. You might not be sitting with your partner. Turn to your shoulder partner. Tell them what's your favorite prequel that you have watched. Just real quick, turn to your shoulder part. Tell them what's your favorite prequel. Um, Some of you may be like Star Wars prequel fans. George Lucas, there's some of you in the room. Probably my favorite prequels. But we're going to focus on a prequel story. Actually, a little bit before Palm Sunday, leading up, Palm Sunday, Jesus is gathered with his disciples in the home of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is this little guy. And for those of you who follow the chosen, I heard this week that they're actually casting the role of Zacchaeus to Danny DeVito. And I'm like, Danny, I don't know if they should be putting that guy up in a tree. That's not a good idea. But anyways, um, so they're in the home of Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus' life has just been completely transformed and changed. He encounters Jesus and he says, Look, whatever I have stolen. I will give back up to fourfold what I have stolen from people, and I will repay them. His life was changed. He was willing to bankrupt himself to follow Jesus and surrendered himself completely to him. So they're around the table, and they're dining, and they're reclining, and they're engaging in dinner and conversation. And Luke actually shares with us the why of our text today. And it says in Luke 19, verse 11, it says... As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Jesus again the the triumphant entry is getting ready to take place and there's all of this anticipation and expectation of what Jesus is going to do when he comes into Jerusalem but he wants to temper their enthusiasm he wants to correct their misperception that this is going to occur really quick and here we are 2000 plus years later awaiting for Jesus to set enthroned on the earth and so he wanted to correct this misperception that this is going to come quickly. I remember I was a relatively new believer in, in, a, in a chapel service at Ozark Bible Institute and college. And, and we had a, an evangelist with a Sister Burkett. And she was sharing about, you know, the Jesus coming back and how soon it was. And she was talking about how she's got this rug at her front door that needed to be replaced. Like it was worn, it was old, But she just knew Jesus is going to come back so quickly. Why waste $30 on a new rug when she could give that money to missions and, and, and you know, spread the gospel around the world? And here we are 25 years later, and I wonder, did she ever get a new rug for her front porch? My parents came to Jesus in the, in the mid-70s in the Jesus movement time. And they've talked uh, since then, I've heard my brother and I, I've got a twin brother and heard them, that when they got saved and they began to follow Jesus, they began to talk about how they didn't even think they would see my brother and I get to kindergarten before Jesus came back. They just knew he was going to come back so quickly. And here we are 47 years later. Sometimes Jesus wants to correct our misperception of how quickly things happen. He, God, works on a timetable so different than ours. And Pastor Jim echoed this in his series um, when we were in 2 Peter about the end of all things. And the reality is, believers, we live an anticipation of Christ's return. It is our blessed hope. We anticipate Jesus coming back. But the reality is, is he wants us to invest. He wants us to live. He wants us to serve and to dream Like it will be our lifetime before he returns. You've got one life to invest in Jesus and his kingdom. So invest it now. Don't hunker down and wait. Oh, that Jesus is coming back. No, invest. Buy that rug for the front porch. Send your kids to college. Get them trained. I mean, save for retirement. Who knows how long this is going to be? Invest like it is going to take him your lifetime to return so Jesus picks up this story. He goes. Um, there's the setting here of the disciples around the table, and then it jumps into another story. And I, I have the privilege of directing a challenge one that's a freshman class for classical conversations on Monday, and we just finished reading Taming of the Shrew by Shakespeare. And if you know anything about the story, it's like a play within a play. And it's really interesting um, if you want to read it. Um, But so anyways, this is kind of what's happening here. We have the setting, and then Jesus goes into this other story that is taking place. And that starts in verse 12. Let's take our attention there. He said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return, calling ten of his servants calling 10 of his servants together. So I want us to ponder for a moment identity. Now, if you were a servant or a slave in ancient Middle Eastern culture, I guarantee you, you did not sit around very often pondering your existence and your identity, who you were. The question was answered for you, okay? You were a servant you are a slave your whole identity and being was wrapped up in you serving this master this person there was very little moment and space and time to think about personally your identity Paul later on when he describes himself and when he talks about who he is, he says Paul a servant and sometimes Paul a slave of Jesus Christ. He echoes this idea, this theme that as followers of Christ that we are his servants. Now here we are thousands of years later and as Americans we often ponder our identity. Who am I going to be that is one of the luxuries of living in a a wealthy and affluent society we are no longer in survival mode so we seriously are able to take time and energy giving into these things of flourishing of growing and thriving we're not just scratching out an existence each and every day so we get to ponder these really great and important questions of who am i and i'd like for us to take a moment to consider this idea of identity and maybe you feel for you that that's been settled decades ago you know years ago maybe that's no longer a question in your mind maybe you're here today and you're still in the process of discovering who you are and who you will be the reality is for us to arrive at a point of identity It is a very complex process. And guess what? You cannot find a guide for it at Barnes and Noble. All right? You can't order it off Amazon. There is no guide out there to forming your identity. It is a complex process that takes place. It doesn't occur in a vacuum where you are the sole contributor to who you are and who you are going to be. It is this complex process of input and output from other people, from parents, from coaches, from teachers, from pastors, from friends, from other people that are around you. Kara Powell and Brad Griffin, they talk about these questions in their book, Three Big Questions. And especially if you're between the ages of 15 and 25 today, you are probably to some degree wrestling with this question of identity. Who am I? And really, right now, if you were to try and answer that question, I bet your response is, I don't even know. Because from 15 to 25, so much of your identity is wrapped up in what others expect of you. I mean, you're living your life trying to fulfill parents' expectations and teachers' expectations and coaches' expectations and your friends' expectations. There's all of these things that, that you are. It's a part of your identity right now is what others expect you to be as you're trying to figure this out. Another thing that is just so predominant in these ages and stage of life is the feeling of insecurity that I am not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not popular enough. It's just this feeling of being insufficient. That is oftentimes in this stage, in this flux of teen identities, where we're at. So if you're a little bit older, sometimes life events can rattle your sense of identity. Maybe there's a change in your career and your profession and what you're going to do. Maybe you lose a job. You get laid off. There's all of these transitions and changes. There's maybe a death of a loved one, of a spouse or a child, and you're left feeling, who am I now? Maybe you, you go through a painful divorce, and just, again, your identity is rocked to its core, and you're wondering, who am I now? And what I hope and pray today that as a believer, as a person in this room, that you will be assured and that to the core of who you are and your identity, that you will truly believe that you are God's person, period. Before you do anything, before you talk about gifts, talents, and abilities, before anything takes place, you are God's person, And there are things that he says about you. There are things that he thinks about you. There are things that he feels about you as his person. And I love what what the Bible says. The Bible describes throughout scripture, throughout the narrative story of God, what he says about you and I. It starts in Genesis that we are made in God's image. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You are. God's masterpiece. You are his child. You are a new creation. You are a friend of God. You are chosen by God. You are his person here and now for such a time as this. May you know to the core of your being and who you are before anything else happens or takes place, you are God's person. You belong to him. He loves you and cares about you. The narrative picks up in verse 13. It says, he gave them ten minutes. That's um, oftentimes in other parables and stories we see that pound talents. But it's an amount of money. He gave them this and said to them, engage in business until I come. So on their own, without doing anything to earn or deserve, he freely gives them this money, which was equivalent to about a hundred days' wages for a working person. Who in here would love to get a bonus? Hundred day working day bonus? Anybody? If you're hourly, so I mean, just think about it. What what could you do? Maybe income tax season wasn't good for you, and you you know, and you can pay back the the, the, the IRS with with this. But just imagine you have this in your hand. And the nobleman gives his servants the responsibility, he says, to engage in business till I come back. Here is these resources, and I want you to use them. I want you to invest them on my behalf until I return. And what's interesting in the text here, we do not see the nobleman giving explicit instruction and direction As to where this business is to be conducted, where the business is to be transacted, he actually gives the servants, he gives them the opportunity, he gives them the privilege, he gives them the chance to discern where to engage in business on his behalf while he is away. Somebody needs to write a book called Growing Up AG, all right? I don't know about you, but growing up AG, there was this sense, whether you picked it up on at church or in youth camps or retreats, that the gold standard was you would be in a service, you would have this moment of just divine revelation, and God would speak to you and say, go to fill in the blank. Or he would say, "Do fill in the blank," and you went to these camps, and you went to these services, and you longed to have an experience like this because there was a few in your youth group, there was a few in your church that would get up and testify, or they would declare, you know, that God had spoke to them and told them these things, and you're just kind of wondering, God, when is it going to be my turn? When am I going to have my burning bush experience? When are you going to call me? And there, I guarantee you there's many in this room today that could say, I've never experienced that. Now, for those of you that have, God bless you. I mean, cherish that, hold on to that. You're probably going to need that to do what God is walking you to do, calling you to do, leading you to do. But if you don't have that experience, I want you to know you are no less called by God. You are no less walking through life without a purpose and significance. God has it for you. He has just given you the task and the responsibility to discern what it is. And I love John Mark Comer's book, Garden City. And he talks about sometimes some of us, in order to arrive at that sense of our purpose and our calling, we have to ask lots of questions. That's how we figure it out. That's how we discern. And I want to share some of those with you today. Number one, he says, what do you love? I mean, what is it that you love doing? What are you passionate about? Again, this is a luxury of the West. Thankfully, we can. This is like the call of Abraham, right? that we use our blessing to bless other people. So let's use our influence, the opportunity to ponder these questions. What am I passionate about? What can I do not to make something of ourselves, but to serve and be a blessing to others? What are you passionate about? What do you love to do? What makes you happy, sad, angry? What energizes you? Next, what are you good at? And maybe what are you bad at? All right, I mean, figuring that out. You know, sometimes even when you fail at something, it's not failure because you get a little bit closer of figuring out what it is maybe you're supposed to do, who it is you're supposed to be. Our, our, our success at things and our failure at things, what we're good at, what we're bad at, leads and guides and direct us to discern how the Lord might be calling us, what our purpose may be. Next, ask yourself, what does the world need When I look at the world, when I look at my city, when I look at my state, my country, when I look at the world, what does it need? Do you ever ponder and say, you know what, I see this problem here. I wish somebody would do something about that. Maybe that person is going to be you. Maybe the Lord is leading you to do something about it to fix that. Next, does it make the world a more Christ-like place? Is what happening in you, is what you're doing, does it lead to human flourishing? Does it lead to people thriving? Does it draw people closer to Jesus? Asking yourself that question. What are the open doors in your life? I mean, what is in front of you? What is happening right now that God is opening? Where are the open doors? Where are the closed doors? These are ways that God will direct us to discern his leading and how he is guiding us to our calling and our purpose. What is God blessing? Is there an area of your life where God just keeps blessing? Where other people say, man, I just see this, this skill, this talent, this ability in you. And I just see it growing and, and, and flourishing. And it, what, are, what, what is God blessing and doing in your life that you're good at and getting better at and doors keep opening? It's doing good. Next one, this is pivotal. This is important. What are the people that you know, that you trust, that love you and care about you, what are they saying? What are they saying to you? It, it, whatever they're saying it is, listen to them. Even ask them a question. Be honest. Open up and say, what do you see in me? What is it that you see in me? How do you see God working in my life? And then just sit. With no preconceived answer or idea of what you want and listen and hear them out. Receive what they have to say to you. Do people affirm your desires and what you're doing? Do they say things you're on the right track? The proverb says, in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So ask people what they think about what you're doing and listen And lastly, what is the Spirit stirring in your heart? What is God stirring in you? This is kind of similar to the first one, but different in this way. Sometimes the Spirit will lead you and ask you to do things you are not comfortable doing. We all know this following Jesus, this following God's purpose and calling in our lives, is not a a vacation. It is not... Uh, It is not an adventure in comfort and security. God will often push us. God will often stretch us. And so what is the Spirit calling you to do? What is the Spirit speaking to your heart that you just can't get away from? It's on your mind when you get up in the morning. It's on your mind when you go to bed. How is the Spirit of God stirring you? How is he stirring your heart? You have a purpose and you have a calling, Regardless if you have a burning bush experience, do the hard work of discerning how God may be leading you, guiding you, and directing you. I stand here before you today as a person who's never had a burning bush experience. But I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know how God has wired me. I know the purpose that God has for me. I know his calling on my life. There were some experiences that I had in, in college that definitely shaped that. And well, the first was between some semesters of schooling, I had the opportunity to work for Ozark Salad Company. We made potato salad and coleslaw by the hundreds of pounds at a time. And by day three in that factory, I knew this is not for me, Jesus. This is not what you have for me. So I discerned quickly, this is not where I'm going to serve the Lord. The next opportunity I had was another summer experience, and it was working as a roofer. Thank God for roofers. We all like our houses dry and buttoned up and tight, right? But man, I got up on that roof, and I'm not kidding. My knees just shook uncontrollably. I couldn't help it. I hated heights. There's one point I literally almost walked off the back of a roof. My buddy saved me. Thank the Lord. Uh, My first day on the job, it didn't help, but the owner of the business walks onto the site with a halo around his head. He had fell off a roof a few months before, broke his neck, comes up, and I'm like, Jesus, no, you have not called me to be a roofer. I moved to Springfield in 99 to pursue my master's in counseling at AGTS. Dr. Harris was one of my professors there. Thank you so much for the work and your service to students over the years. Um, But came to Springfield and began getting my education. But, you you know, you got to work. And so the only door that was there at the time was roofing. And you all know how I feel about roofing. And, And so as a poor grad school student, guess what I went and did? I went and sold plasma. Y'all ever done that before? And I found out that they were hiring, ding, 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 a job. And as I began to work in this job, I realized I really like working with people. I ended up being a phlebotomist. You guys know what that is? That's where they put the needle in your arm. I ended up doing that, and I was really good at it. But I discerned from that role. I had an opportunity even in college to work at the great company, Dollar General. And I realized I really like to serve People. I like to work around people. And so I quickly discerned that's part of my purpose. That's part of who I am. That's ha- part of how God has wired me and designed me. Now, I'll just say over the course of my, uh, the years, that context and where that has been has looked different. It's been at Pipkin Middle School. It's been at Webster Park Assembly of God. It's been at Burrell Behavioral Health. It's now here at Central Assembly. The context has been different, but the purpose is rock solid to serve people. Do the work of discerning your calling. There was a sermon that Pastor Steve delivered a couple of years ago, and I'm not kidding. When he shared this, it blew my mind, and I thought, I wish every young person would have somebody in their life that would speak to them this way. He shared that he was wrestling with the decision. He was really trying to figure out how God may be leading him and and was really, again, if you grew up AG, you knew you had to find the perfect will of God. Not just the will of God, but you got to find the perfect will of God. Because if not, God's going to be mad at you because you didn't find out what he wanted you to do. And I remember Pastor Steve, he was talking about this experience, and he was relaying this this mentor, this other person that he was sharing this with. He was really struggling with this decision. And the person just said to him, hey, Steve, you know what? If your heart's desire is to follow Jesus with with your whole person, your your whole being, you know, God's not going to be mad at you if that's your heart's desire. He's liable to bless whatever decision you make, whatever thing you put your hand to. Jesus calls the noblemen together, and he equips them, and he resources them, and then he gives them the responsibility of discerning where to engage in business until he returns. So we have our identity, we have our purpose, and then we have the outcome. Verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom... Because there was a big question mark as to whether this was going to happen. I mean, nobody knew that he was going to come back, right? In fact, we read in the text before that, there was actually a delegation that was sent after him and says, we don't want him to be king. Do not appoint this guy as king. So he returns having received the kingdom. He orders the servants whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had been gained by doing his business What have you done? As they come together, a full ledger will reveal whether they were loyal to conduct and engage business on his behalf while he was away. Now, I'll just tell you, the text does not share with us the results of all the ten servants. In fact, the text just gives us a highlight of three of them. The first two, this is the response. Well done, good servants. You have invested. You have been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. Isn't this interesting? Not a paid vacation, not a pay raise in the kingdom of God. More responsibility. Ain't that, that's how it works. That's how the kingdom of God works. So he says, "Well done, good and good servants, because you have been faithful." In a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. They have to give an account of what business has been transacted while he was away. And notice that his commendation of two of the servants isn't their success, but their faithfulness. We live in a culture obsessed with success. We are consumed We are inundated by this drive to succeed to our own detriment and our own, well, unwell-being. I mean, to our own poor health. We are driven to success. We're obsessed. But in God's kingdom, success isn't the goal. It is faithfulness. Faithfulness to the purpose and the call that God has. You see, when we go about this trying to answer the question, am I successful, we're always going to be chasing it. We're never going to get to the end. How do you know when you've been successful? You'll get to the mountaintop and you realize, oh, wow, this uh, this isn't it. This isn't the end. And so you go pursuing other things. You guys, we hear these stories all the time, athletes, musicians. Hollywood stars that think, "Oh, I'm going to achieve this and then I've arrived and then they leave feeling empty and just worn." In the kingdom of God, success is not the outcome, but faithfulness. Faithfulness to the call of God. So in a question that might be more helpful than being than are you successful? What about asking, are you being faithful? Are you being, now now I want to say this right here. Let me give a little disclaimer. Faithfulness is not this laziness. Faithfulness is not just this sitting back and coasting. All right. That's not what faithfulness is. Pastor Jim talks often with our staff and our team about Serving in the kingdom of God is all about uh, this marriage, this partnership between our excellence and God's anointing, and that is what it is. It is this marriage. It is this partnership between us giving God our best, our excellence, regardless of how great or small the task is. We give Him our best, our excellence. We do not coast. We do not settle. Okay, we keep growing. We keep striving. We read books. Look, we get our education. We stretch ourselves because God is creating capacity within us to serve, to serve His kingdom. Being faithful is the outcome in the kingdom of God. Um, who, who's ever who's ever tried to diet in order to lose weight? anybody ever diet you know yeah i've been there um they're kind of a little bit right now um, no we we all do this right so we 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 get you know we'll find some diet we'll find some fad whether it be i'm going keto low carb i mean starvation um, intermittent fasting you know we'll do all of these things because we want to lose weight and we get on the scale because losing weight is the goal right we get on the scale and, oh, oh but we, we have a victory day. One and a half pounds down since the last time I weighed. And then we go a few more days later, we get on the scale. And it was like, oh, I'm up two pounds now. And it's this roller coaster ride because we're what? We're pursuing the scale when the scale isn't the goal. The goal is to be healthy, right? The goal is just to be healthy. So in order to be healthy, there's a process that you have to follow, right? It is, you know, hopefully you eat relatively well. Um, Hopefully you're getting enough sleep. You're getting good rest. Hopefully that involves, you know, a well-balanced diet, some exercise. Health, if health is the goal, that seems achievable and obtainable versus chasing the scale. And that's kind of what success is like in America. We're always chasing it. But the goal God wants for us is to be faithful, to be healthy. I love what Marilyn Gardner writes about this tension, this idea between success and faithfulness. She writes, success is defined by performance. Faithfulness is defined by constancy. Success is defined by accomplishment. Faithfulness by devotion. Success is defined by achievement faithfulness by commitment success is defined by attaining a goal faithfulness by being true to a promise so that for the servant of Jesus for the one following Jesus the the goal the outcome is faithfulness giving your best to the task in front of you in the kingdom of god serving with excellence produces the outcome. Now, I'll say this. There's a reason that farmers go out and plant, right? They know that the process will produce harvest. So they may not be able to guarantee the harvest. They may not be able to guarantee the outcome, but they know that engaging in the process leads to results. It leads to an outcome. And the same as in the kingdom of God, your excellence, God's anointing, faithfulness over time will produce. It will produce fruit in your lives. It will produce fruit in other people's lives if we are faithful. Mother Teresa served in one of the most desponding places in the world and a journalist, a British journalist, once asked her how she kept going. Know that knowing that she could never meet the needs of all the dying in the streets of Calcutta, and she said, "I am not called to be successful. I am called to be faithful. And that is your call, and that is my call today. Be faithful. Be God's person, uh, living out His purpose." in the context that he has planted you faithfully until he returns. Now, we've talked about all the characters that hopefully we are striving to be like in this story. But as you know, there, there are other characters that aren't as ideal for us to model our lives after. In fact, the text tells us that after the two faithful servants had been called to him, at some point, one servant comes... And says, Lord, here is the money you've given me. I buried it. I hid it away. Because I knew that you are a severe man. And you take what you do not sow. You know, you take what you do not plant. you, You steal. You rob. So here is what you've given me. I'm returning it to you. Revealing his heart. For the nobleman. Remember, there's this tension in the story. Will the servants represent the nobleman on his behalf while he is away? Will they conduct his business while he's away? And again, in the ancient Middle Eastern culture at this time, the safe bet would be to wait and see which horse wins before you back it. I mean, with the best, the smartest person, the smartest thing to do, bury the money under the floor and wait and see the outcome. But that's not what the nobleman was after. He was wanting to know who was going to be loyal to conduct business on his behalf in a hostile environment while he is away. The unfaithful servant says, "Here's your money back." And he is immediately condemned by the nobleman. In fact, he leaves him with his disordered perception of the, of the nobleman. And we see, uh, let me find here in my notes. I should have highlighted it. It's in Psalm. Here we go. Jesus in this story is echoing Psalm 18, verses 25 to 26. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pu- pure, but to the devious you show yourself shrewd. I know you are a shrewd master, so here's your money back. The nobleman leaves him with his disordered perception of himself. He takes the money that was given to him and he gives to the one who had gained ten. Now, remember, at the beginning of the story, there was the delegation that was sent to say, we don't want him to be our king. The nobleman then calls for all of his enemies to come before him. And he says, those who are my enemies, bring them before me and slaughter them right here. And the story ends. And everyone around the table is in the room is living and kind of waiting with this tension. What's going to happen? I mean, what's going to take place? But Jesus ends the story there. It's similar to how the prodigal son, the story ends with the father with the oldest son inviting him to come into the banquet. Your brother who is lost has come home. He has been restored. And the story ends and we don't know. Does he go in? Does he not go in? Does he continue to resist? And we're left wondering here. All of these people are on the execution block. But what actually happens What will the nobleman do? We know that Palm Sunday is this opportunity that Jesus has. He enters the city of Jerusalem. Again, and people are waving palm branches. They're declaring him king, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. They're saying all these things. Jesus comes into the city. Again, it's like he's received this kingship. People are welcoming him. People are inviting him. But just a few short days later, the same crowd is saying things like, give us Barabbas. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. Crucify him. And what will Jesus do? What will his response be? In the parable, we see, we, we get a picture of what all of these people deserve. They deserve to be executed. They deserve the, the, the wages. The outcome of their disloyalty was death. And I know that seems pretty severe in our culture, but this was norm for the day in the ancient world. This was so typical and common so what will Jesus do? What will his response be? We see that the tension he is on the cross. He's being, he is being ridiculed. He is being mocked. The reality is we know that he could call legions of angels down to carry him off the cross and slaughter his enemies. But instead he cries, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And that is his heart. Jesus is generous to all of us. The story that we read, the parable, is filled with the nobleman man being generous to his servants by giving them gifts that they did not earn or deserve. He then rewards their faithfulness with, with more. To the one who wasn't faithful, guess what? He doesn't fire him. He doesn't banish him. He just takes what he had and gives to somebody else. And then to those who were his enemies, what will the nobleman do? We see what they deserved, but we know the heart of Jesus for his enemies. He called us as followers to what? To forgive our enemies, to love those who abuse us, to persecute us. And we see the heart for Jesus is the same To them. It is his response. Man, I'd like to call our prayer partners forward and if our worship team would join us on the stage. Identity, purpose, and outcome. You are God's person conducting his business faithfully until he returns. So if we could stand together today, I want to ask, which of these characters do you identify with today? Do you identify with, man, you know, I'm hearing about this Easter thing coming up. I'm hearing about Walk the Last Week. I'm hearing a lot about Jesus. I heard some friends that went and saw the movie, but I really don't know who he is. The reality is, is even though you may think and say, I'm not God's person, I want you to know he wants you to be. His heart is for you. He loves you. You may have been going through life doing your own thing. You may even be what you would think is an enemy to him, but I want you to know he is not your enemy today. He loves you. He cares about you. He wants to be in relationship with you.